when that one stanza popped up, I bet you were all wondering if we were going to sing 12 verses of that song. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is abundantly clear to us. There's many topics where we can look at and say, I'm just not so sure what that means. You're, you are the God who reigns and the God who gives us all that we need. And in this topic regarding money, you give us much information, so much that it's unmistakable, and yet we don't apply it. So help us, Father, today to understand what your word says, to take it and apply it to our lives, that we might be the kind of people that look into your word for our guide for life. Help us to do that for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so this will be part two on money and finances. Part one was a couple of weeks ago, actually two months ago. So I'm sure you remember everything that I said. I didn't. I had to kind of uh, go back and look over my notes. So I will kind of give you a quick summary of what we talked about two months ago. But every good presentation about money, I'm sure you get all kinds of things in the mail, they always tell you that the presenter has a secret for financial success. And they're going to give you that secret, and it's going to take you to being financially independent and a gajillionaire. You have to wonder why they keep doing these seminars, because they obviously didn't apply their principles, because they would be a gajillionaire, and they wouldn't even be doing them anymore. But here's my secret. Spend less than what you make and do it over a long period of time. Now, that's really profound, isn't it? That's something that seems like it ought to be common sense, but it's not so common anymore. It was something that my dad instilled in me at an early age, but dads don't seem to be doing that anymore, and so people think that they could just spend everything that they want. That becomes clear in personal lives and in our governmental life. Notice that I didn't say to make more than you spend. It's spend less than you make. The reason it's said that way is because you can always find more things to spend on. You can always outspend your income. So to put it in another way, the gazintas have to be greater than the gazautas. So this this principle holds true for believers and unbelievers alike. My dad was not a believer when, when he first taught me these kinds of things. <clears throat> so this will work for both believers and unbelievers. But for the believer, and we talked about this a couple of months ago, there's a slight modification to this. And so I would put it this way. Spend less than what you make, do it over a long period of time, and give back to God what he's entrusted to you to use for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. That's real important. We need to use what God has given us to the expansion 
of his kingdom and of his glory. So a couple of things to kind of summarize uh, what we talked about a couple of months ago. The sooner that we grasp that we really don't own anything, that everything that we have belongs to God, the better off we are. God lends it to us, everything that we have, even our breath, he lends to us. And so it shouldn't be so hard for us to give it back to him because it's his in the first place. So we need to remember that. The hard part is putting that into practice, of course. As a result of our sinful nature, we tend to steal from God and keep way too much for ourselves. The love of money causes us not to handle our finances correctly, and as a result, we end up stealing from God. We spoke of many different principles in the scripture, and one of them is the problem of us desiring instant gratification. In its place, we need to have a strong view of delayed gratification or deferred gratification. We talked about what that meant, and we talked about how years ago, if you wanted something, you saved for it. That would be delayed gratification. Instant gratification is, I got this piece of plastic, I can put it in front of the cashier and they just give me whatever I want. So instant gratification versus delayed gratification. We talked about a couple of examples, and I think I, I thought of a couple of more. But if you think of men like Adam, Esau, and King Saul, each of those pursued instant gratification. And they did that to their own harm. If you think about men like David, Daniel, and the Lord Jesus as our supreme example, they were patient and realized that the will of God was to be found in deferred gratification. We need to be like that second group of people who are willing to wait upon God for him to provide what we need. We talked about a number of different proverbs, and I'm, I'm sure by, from a couple of months ago you were probably tired of me reading proverbs that seem to be saying the same thing over and over, but one of the principles was we need to work hard. And Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. So God tells us we need to work hard. We need to be generous. Proverbs 19, 17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. We learned that we can't take it with us when we die. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return. To go as he came, he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. So the rich man, the poor man, they all leave the earth the same way, with nothing. So God says, we can't take it with us, so keep that in mind as you think about your finances. A lot of these are very closely related. We also spoke of the need to invest for the long term, and I mean the real long term. That's eternity. We need to store up treasures in heaven. 
We looked at um, we looked at Luke 12 last week in the parable of the rich fool. Remember, he's the the fellow that had a bumper crop, and what did he say? I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to put up bigger barns. And what does God say to him? He said, "Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things which you have provided?" So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we need to store up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. We are, we are all going to die. Death is the most certain event people face. You know, we could say death and taxes are most certain, but death is even more certain than taxes. 100% of us in this room will, all, will die. We don't know when that'll be. It could be tomorrow. It could be a number of years away, but we'll all die. You know, people go to a financial planner, and many financial planners say that you have to put together a plan for your finances for when you retire. Some of them say you have to plan until you're, uh, plan your finances until you're 100 years old. Like, we're all going to live to 100 years old? How many people do you know that are 100 years old? But that financial planner will tell you, you got to plan until you're 100 years old. So financial planners, they work with things like probabilities and something called actuarial tables, which say based on a certain age, how many more years you have to live. But the financial planner has a problem compared to what the believer does. The believer fully understands that 100% of us are going to die. We don't know when it is. And so we need to plan our finances with that in mind. So the Bible's plan, God's plan, is not, that, not for us to plan for 100 years, but for eternity. Now that's what I call real ter- long-term planning. Not just 100, but eternity. So please turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we covered Matthew chapter 6 last week, but I want to read it again to lay it in our minds. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's kind of funny, uh, one of the commentaries in 2 Corinthians uh, talked about that Paul did not make it the sermon on the amount when he talked about giving. But this is the sermon on the mount that Jesus is talking about. And he says, um, starting at verse 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is, what is Christ telling us? He's telling us that we have a choice. We can lay up treasures on earth, but you know when you think about it, even that doesn't work because rust and thieves can get at them. Or you can lay up treasures in heaven. And he says, and by the way, wherever you lay up those treasures, that's where your heart's going to be. So we need to Think carefully about that as we think about our finances. Luke chapter 16. Hyde read this earlier. 
you can turn there. Luke chapter 16, and starting at verse 1. He said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that the man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your stewardship, for you can no longer be my steward. There's lots of things we can think of in this parable, lots of things we could talk about, but I want to get towards the end of the parable where Jesus takes and makes an application to us. This rich man has a steward. The steward was squandering his master's goods. He was wasting them. And the steward says, okay, you're done. Show me the, the ledger book, what you got, and you're done. So what does, what does this steward do? Down at verse 3, the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what I should do, that when I am put out of stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill. Sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And there's all kinds of discussion. You could read pages and pages and pages of what this guy was doing. Was it legal? Was it illegal? Did he, uh, did he squander his master's money again? But all that, put that all aside, we're not even going to talk about that today because it's not relevant to what we want to get to. And Jesus takes and makes a comment on what this steward did. And he, in verse 8, he says, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. No indication that what the steward did was good, bad, or indifferent. He says, you're a shrewd character. Right? That's what he said. What is he getting at? The next verse tells us, Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in this generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. <coughs> so worldly people, people that haven't trusted Christ, sons of this world, are more shrewd with their money than believers were the sons of light. How could that be? Because an unbeliever tends to be generous with his money when it comes to the idea that he thinks he can get something back from being generous. So if, he's gonna, if he could be generous to you, knowing that you have something that he would like or something that you could provide for him, they tend to be very generous like that. Not so generous towards the poor, because you can't get anything back from the poor person, but to somebody that they can get something back, they're very generous. So Christ says that the unbeliever is more shrewd than the believer. Why? Christ tells us as believers to help the poor, so it can't be because of that. But it's because the unbeliever understands that this money is temporary, but if they can use the money to further gain themselves, to, to provide something for them, 
They're willing to do it. But we as believers, we tend to not do that. We tend to not think of using our money to provide an influence that we can share the gospel with people and that they can trust Christ as a result of hearing the gospel. So the unrighteous money, and money in and of itself is neutral, but if we use it incorrectly, it's unrighteous. It's often the source of evil, and more than often, more times than not, it's used for unrighteous purposes. So when we, we as believers, when we make friends with money, we're building up treasures in heaven for eternity. The believer needs to have that eternal view in mind that it's not just our earthly life that counts. If the unbeliever has enough forethought to think about using his money to secure his future, like as in this parable, then believers should be even more forward-looking about the use of his money to be able to win people to Christ and to influence them for Christ. We need to be generous with our money in that way. And I can tell you, I don't think that I've done well with that in the past. I'm trying to do better, but I think I was not very wise in using my money in that kind of way. So that's something we need to consider and we need to think about. Now Jesus broadens the application down in verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. <clears throat> There's a saying that the real character of a man is shown by what he would do when no one is looking. And that's only partly true because as a believer, we know that God sees everything. And God says that if we will not be faithful in little things, like handling money, then we'll not be faithful in big things, the things that will last for eternity. And God acts on this principle and, and, and tells us to act on this principle, even in terms of choosing leaders for our church. He says that if a man is not handling his personal finances correctly, then he's not even qualified to be an elder or a deacon. In 1 Timothy 3, the, the man, the qualifications for one of these men is not greedy for money and one who rules his own household well. And it's so important that Jesus takes the next verse to really spell it out. Kind of like saying, okay, you blockheads, if you didn't understand the parable, if you didn't understand those two verses of explanation, here, here's another one. Therefore, verse 11 and 12, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? What is Jesus saying? All the money, all the resources that we have belong to God. If we're not going to be faithful in what doesn't belong to us, how is God going to give us true riches? What are the true riches? I think it's men's souls and treasures in eternity. So if we don't handle what God gives us, what's not even our own, unrighteous mammon, how is God going to bless us in, in, for eternity? 
And then verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Many people think that they can, that they can balance the two, but that's not the case. It's not going to work. The very idea of what a slave is, a slave is to provide for his master. And so if we're a slave of money, that's what we're going to provide. If we're a slave of God, then we're going to provide for him. The rich man, rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, in chapter 16, verse 19, seems to be a direct example of this principle. The rich man was so consumed with serving his master, money, that he was not able to serve God by helping the poor man, Lazarus. He served his master money, and he hated who should have been his real master, God. And he did that and demonstrated that by not helping out Lazarus, the poor man. And as a result, the, the poor man went to Hades and was in torment because he chose his master, money, over the real master, the Lord Jesus so if we choose to serve God rather than money, we'll be generous with our money, and that will please God, and he will reward us in eternity. If we think we can be loyal to both money and God, we're just kidding ourselves. So there's four general observations to the whole parable. Jesus is telling us that we must use our resources that is given us to make friends that will last in eternity, to win people for Christ. God views money as a little thing, and that will determine the extent of our stewardship in heaven. The heavenly things, the big things. If you're unfaithful in the little things, you're not going to be entrusted with big things. As stewards, we must be trustworthy with the use of our money, and we cannot serve both God and money. So, kind of a summary of that parable that Jesus gave. Now, there's three individuals... In the New Testament, that Jesus uses, I think, to, to solidify these thoughts in our minds. And I'm going to put the three people together, and I think you'll see. The rich young ruler. The scripture says he was very rich. And you remember the story. It's in Luke 18. He came to Jesus with a question about eternal life. What must I do to have eternal life? And he got an answer that he wasn't expecting. After Jesus telling him to keep the commandments, Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now we know that that's not a formula for salvation. But Jesus knew that this man's master was money and not God. The rich young ruler, the scripture says, went away very sad. He was still in his unbelief. Because he realized that believing in Christ would change his allegiance from being a slave of money to being a slave of God, and that would have to change his view of money. He wasn't willing to change his master from money to the Lord. Then we have an example of Zacchaeus. <coughs> and you all remember the story of Zacchaeus, and not to be outdone by Craig, who tried to sing Steve Green's song of Ha Ha Ha. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. So there, Craig, I beat you. <laughs> so we remember the story of Zacchaeus. 
especially if you have children and you've read any children's Bible books. Zacchaeus was small. He wanted to see Jesus. He was curious. Climbs up in the tree. Jesus sees him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I need to come to your house today. Jesus goes to his house. We have no idea what Jesus talked to Zacchaeus about, but Zacchaeus pops out a totally different man. The scripture says that he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. The rich young ruler, the scripture calls him very rich. Zacchaeus was just rich. I don't know if there was a difference there or not, but Zacchaeus was rich. But listen to what Zacchaeus said to the Lord in Luke 8, 19, verse 8. He said, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if in anything I accuse anyone falsely, I restore it fourfold. Imagine if the rich young ruler had that kind of response. So Zacchaeus says, Lord, I understand the claims that you are the king. And as a result of understanding, I'm going to change the way that I handle my finances. And here's the way I'm going to change my finances. So Zacchaeus became a believer that day. And the way that he handled his money demonstrated that he understood the fact that God was now in control of his finances. He knew that God wanted him to handle his money differently than before. And if you think about Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, there's a stark contrast. The rich young ruler went away very sad, and I could picture Zacchaeus jumping around. He had a weight taken off of him, didn't he? The rich young ruler was still serving his master money, who's a cruel, a cruel master. And Zacchaeus was doing the same, but he left that day and he had a new master. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. So to the rich young ruler, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to, to get into the kingdom. To Zacchaeus, he says, today salvation has come to your house. Stark difference. <clears throat> One more example in Luke 21. Luke seems to have a lot, of, a lot of material about money, doesn't he? In Luke 21, uh, Jesus and the disciples are watching people put money in the, in the coin box and they're dumping in all their coins. And the poor widow puts in two mites. She gave just a little bit, but it was all that she had. And Jesus says that she gave more than all the others. More numerically? No, not at all. More proportionally? Yeah. She gave everything that she had. And so Jesus commends her. So those three examples, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, and the poor widow. Think about that. Who do you want to be like? Who do you want to emulate? So last week, Craig started to talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I thought he was going to preach my sermon, because Craig could easily preach a couple of sermons in one. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is one of the largest sections, 8 and 9, that talk about giving. 
<coughs> and to be clear, Paul is talking about taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Apparently, the Corinthians were working on it. They were, said they were going to send money, and Paul was trying to make certain that they were going to do what they said they would do. And so in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I'm just going to pull out two sections of both of those chapters and see principles that Paul urged the Corinthians to spur them on to their giving and to have generous giving. <clears throat> you, might, um, you might say, well, this is talking about a one-time gift, and, and that's true. But I think the principles we, we ought to take into all of our giving and all of the way that we handle our finances. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, an abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Craig spoke last week, and he, he talked about how many times grace is used in this section. It's anywhere from seven to ten based on uh, the, the roots of the words, and I sure don't know that, but it, it's, um, it, it's very clear that Paul sees giving as a grace. God has given us grace, he talks about, and we give grace back. Paul uses the Macedonians as, as an example of how they recognized that they had received God's grace, and now they were employing Paul, imploring Paul, to take their financial gift to Jerusalem. He tells the Corinthians to follow their example, and we need to follow their example as well. The type of giving that the Macedonians, Macedonians were engaged in was declared the grace of God. The Macedonians were poor. The Corinthians, we don't know their status, but it was probably a lot richer than the Macedonians. And Paul then uses the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians to say, hey, these guys gave out of their poverty just like that widow, and here's what I want you to do. So he tells them, and then he tells them a number of different uh, things about how to think about their, the kind of giving that they should be doing. And so I'll call that biblical giving. So you'll hear me use that term. So biblical giving recognizes that God has showed us amazing grace and then spurs us on to show that to others by our giving. <clears throat> biblical giving is to be motivated by God's grace. And biblical giving is to be done with great joy. The Macedonians were happy, and they were pressing Paul, saying, take this gift. And biblical giving occurs even during great trials and deep poverty. A number of years ago, we had a, an older man at the church. He was a missionary in Mexico. And when he would give you something, you, you'd try to give or pay him for it. Maybe he, he said, hey, I, I got this the other day. And he'd say, what are you trying to do, steal my blessing? That was his attitude. That, that needs to be our attitude. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, For I bear witness 
that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So here again, he says the biblical giving is to be voluntary, not by compulsion. If you don't give because you say it must be voluntary, be mindful of the rich young ruler and the response that Zacchaeus had. Maybe I messed that up the way I said it. <clears throat> if we say that we don't want to give because it's voluntary, <clears throat> think about the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' response was clear. I trust Christ, changes my life. The rich young ruler, I'm not willing to... Uh, Voluntarily, I'm not going to give. And his master was still money. Our biblical giving is to be done with love, and it's to be sacrificial. So not just out of our abundance, but sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. <clears throat> and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So biblical giving cannot happen unless we first have given ourselves to the Lord. There's a corollary to that. If you're not doing biblical giving, you might want to think about, have you given yourself to the Lord? And so biblical giving is really a test of the sincerity of our love, both for Christ and for others. And then in verse 9, Paul kind of caps it off. Um, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. What is, he, what is Paul urging there? He's saying, in a sense, I could talk to you about Macedonians. I could talk about how poor they were. I could talk about the poor widow. But think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made all, the one who created everything. Everything is his. He sets it all aside, he becomes poor for us, and we become recipients of his great grace. How could we not do the same for other people? If we're recipients of God's grace, we must be willing to do that. Biblical giving then must see our Lord Jesus Christ as our supreme example. The one who owned everything became poor. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, through chapter 9, verse 5, Paul is urging the Corinthians to follow through on putting together the gift that they had promised. He tells them to be prepared so that when they come, they won't be embarrassed, and Paul won't be embarrassed for his proclaiming that the Corinthians were going to do this. And we won't uh, go through that today, but we'll look at verse, chapter 9, verse 6. So in chapter 9, verse 6, 
The scripture says, but this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The agricultural imagery here is very clear. You put out one seed, you're going to get one plant. You put a whole pile of seeds out, you're going to get a whole pile of plants. So how do we want to sow? How do we want to give? Do we want to give just a tiny bit? Or do we want to give a lot? Do we want to be the kind of people that are miserly? Or do we want to be the generous kind of people? So biblical giving, we need to think about sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly. Sowing bountifully and reaping bountifully. And then biblical giving is to be generous. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So let each one of us give as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's that hilarious that Craig spoke of last week. So biblical giving needs to be purposeful, not just willy-nilly, not wake up on Sunday morning and say, okay, I think I'll give this today or do this or do that. Biblical giving is to not be done grudgingly, so not not with an attitude that says, gee whiz, I really don't want to do this, but I'll do it anyway, because I have to. It's to be done with cheerfulness, and it's to be, biblical giving is to be not of necessity. So it's not a duty and an obligation, it's to be something that just flows out of our heart because of what Christ did for us. Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work. For it is written, He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your own righteousness. For while you were enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also in abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and of all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I decided just to continue to read the rest of that section because it all flows together. So in this section, biblical giving recognizes that God graced us and provides all things for us to grace other people with those gifts. Biblical giving is is a sign of our righteousness, our doing right before God. Biblical giving is not motivated by the expectation that God will give back financially when money is given. This is direct opposition to prosperity gospel and seed money and all those kinds of things. There's a saying all the way back in the 1600s that a fellow wrote and he said, He that serves God for money will serve the devil for better wages. 
Think about that for a minute. He, he that serves God for money will serve the devil for better wages. So you think the prosperity gospel is something new? This was in the early 1600s that this guy wrote that. Martin Luther said, I have had many things in my hands that I lost. The things that I placed in the hands of God, I still possess. Please turn to Psalm 112. Paul quotes from, from this psalm in this section. And I want to read the psalm, and I think you'll hear many of the concepts that we spoke about today. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So God clearly tells us that we're to give, we're to be generous, and that becomes a righteousness for us as we do that. Biblical giving supplies the needs of other, others, but biblical giving more so demonstrates our obedience and our thanks to God for what he has done for us. So kind of tying it all together, <clears throat> in the introduction we spoke of how many financial planners say you need to prepare for the long term, and that'd be in 100 years. But what the scripture says, our financial plan needs to be geared not for 100 years, not for a million years, but for eternity. Think about that. We must change our outlook and our planning to see our finances the way God does. We need to realize that the way we handle our finances tells a lot about our relationship with the Lord Jesus, who, although he was rich, became poor for us. I ended two months ago with a, a quote from John MacArthur's book, Parables, and I want to read that again. So listen carefully. Those who are not investing in the work of redemption are shirking their duty to be faithful stewards, wasting his passing moment of opportunity and impoverishing themselves in eternity. God doesn't reward people for fritting away his resources to spend money on unnecessary luxuries and status symbols or even cheap trinkets 
trifles, creature comforts, and worthless time-wasting diversions. To do that is to rob oneself of true eternal riches. I think I also read 1 Timothy in the conclusion of our last time, and I'm going to read that again. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And down in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. I read that again because I think that summarizes everything we talked about in these two messages. We need to follow what Christ says. We need to take his word as truth and apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Father, your word says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Father, we in this room are considered rich compared to people in the world. Rich not only materially, but spiritually. The Lord Jesus Christ who is rich, became poor for us. Help us, Father, to be the kind of people that use our finances in such a way that we care for people and that we demonstrate that we love you. Help us to take your word and to apply it to our lives in this manner of money, which you can go through the whole scripture and find it everywhere. Help us, Father, to be faithful in that little things so that you can entrust to us bigger things in eternity. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the amazing grace that he showed to us. Help us, Lord, to show that to others. And we do ask this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.